We have been um, talking about real Christian community. And I told you at the beginning that all of this was inspired by a book that I was reading by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And again, for those of you that don't know who he is, do a little bit of research on the internet. It's easy to find information about him. But suffice it to say, he is a man that lived through one of the most divided times of the Church of Jesus Christ in Nazi Germany as Christians there tried to decide whether to side with Hitler or be against him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer obviously chose to stand for the truth, and he lost his life as a result of that. But before that, he wrote some really profound things for us. We talked up to this point primarily in concept. We've kind of been laying the groundwork and talking conceptually about what it means uh, to have real Christian community. First, we talked about the fact that Jesus is at the center of real Christian community. That without Jesus, you really can't be a part of a Christian community because it is his blood and the forgiveness that we get from him through his blood that allows us to enter into that community. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have fellowship with Christian people if you don't know Christ, but it does mean that if you really want to experience what real Christian community is like, that it begins with that decision to follow Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And if you've never done that or you want to know how to do that, I would be more than happy to explain it to you. You're welcome to come find me after church, and we will sit down and have a conversation, and I'll share that with you. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is at the center of Christianity. Christian community, and without him, we really don't have Christian community. Then we talked about how real Christian community is not an ideal, but rather a divine reality. In other words, it's not something that human beings thought up. It's not something that existed in the mind and the imagination of a human. It is a divine reality. And I, I like the analogy. I kind of discovered it the week after I preached on this one of a river. You know, it's kind of like a river that flows. You can't really do anything to change it. You just got to jump in. And once you accept Christ, you jump into that real Christian community and you're in it, you're part of it. But you know, because it's, it's, it's um, not an ideal of ours, it's a, it's a divine reality, we are, you know, have no right to change it, we don't have the ability to define it, it is what it is. Now we can choose how we choose to live it out, but that's something that we need to keep in mind. The third thing that we talked about was that it, real Christian community is a spiritual reality, not a human reality. A human reality is based on what exists in the heart of man. And the scriptures talk about that being darkness and, and sin nature. Um, whereas a spiritual reality comes from the light that we find in Christ and from the forgiveness we have through him. And trust me, there are some things that are a part of our human reality that even today human beings are doing their best to change. There, there is a solid reality. There are some things that are kind of set in stone. And human beings, as hard as we may try, can't change the physical realities of some of the things that that are around us, and nor can we change the spiritual realities that exist. It is our job to buy into them, to walk into them, and to be a part of that community that is a spiritual reality and not a human reality. So those were the three kind of principles to get us started. Um, next, he kind of goes into this idea that there are seven ministries, he calls them. We, some of these words, we don't usually associate with a ministry, but he calls them seven ministries that people that are part of the body of Christ need to excel in or need to be aware of and need to work at so that we can be a part of real Christian community and help that to grow. And so today we're going to talk about the first of those. I don't know whether I'm going to cover them all. Um, we'll see where God leads in that. But for right now, we're going to talk about the first one, which is the ministry of holding one's tongue. How many of you have ever said something that has gotten you into trouble? 
go ahead and just giggle. Don't even raise your hand. Just giggle a little, because you're already giggling, because you know where that's headed. Uh, you know, it happens to the best of us and the worst of us. You know, there have been times in my life where the moment something came out of my mouth, I could tell by the expression on the person's face that maybe I did not say the right thing. Or worse yet, out of the corner of my eye, I can see my wife do one of these numbers, and I know that I'm getting the look that says, you ought not to have said that, knucklehead. Uh, the knucklehead part is implied. She doesn't necessarily say it, but it's there, you know. Um, sometimes things just slip out. Our tongues have a tendency to get us into trouble if we're not careful. Um, when that happens to us, sometimes I have had the feeling, and maybe you are with me on this, where I'll, I'll say something stupid and wish with all my might that I could chase those words down, grab them by the tail, and shove them back in my mouth before anybody hears them. But most of you understand you can't do that with words. It doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, words continue. Uh, maybe you know someone else who's constantly doing this. Maybe there was someone that you met and you thought, man, that's a, a real friend potential. Or maybe you had someone who was a good friend and, and until they opened their mouth and then some of the things that came out of their mouth made you wonder, oh boy, do I really want to deal with this? Do I really want to be involved with this? Is the drama worth it to be their friend? You know, I, I'm just not willing to go there you know there are people today in our world and in our society especially that believe that just saying whatever is on your mind is like a spiritual gift or something there are people in the christian faith that will defend the fact that that's just who i am i don't need to temper my speech because you know god's given me a divine insight and so whatever i'm thinking probably is going to come out of my mouth and they say it as if that's a good thing and everybody around them knows what? That it's not a good thing. Because most of the things that tumble out of our mouth, or at least for most of us, are not necessarily from God. Amen? If you think about it, and if you study on it, and if you find it in Scripture, or you're inspired by the Spirit, then the things that are coming out of your mouth might be things that are coming for God. If it's whatever happens to pop into your head, chances are good it was inspired by something a little less high than His Holiness God Himself. Amen? Sometimes it's spaghetti. Sometimes it's a show we just watched. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's frustration. But most of the time, if we choose not to control our speech, we get ourselves in trouble. Now, make no mistake about it. I appreciate honesty. And some of these folks will say, well, you know, if it's the truth, I'm going to say it regardless of who it hurts. And, and if you're offended by what I say, so what? And you know, honestly, as I get older, that's kind of the way I feel too. I, I've realized that getting older means getting crotchety. I'm going to use that word. And crotchety means that I'm suddenly willing to say things that offend people more freely than I used to. I used to be really careful about my speech and, and try not to offend, but I'm finding that it's easier as I get older just to be like, you know what, who cares? I'll just offend somebody and I'll just apologize later. Well, I got news for you. That really doesn't work. And, and saying what's on our mind or, or speaking our mind, whether it's going to hurt somebody or not, is really not being honest. It's just kind of being lazy, to be perfectly honest. It, it means that we're not willing to take the time to evaluate what, a, what is about to come out of our mouths to see if it will hurt the person standing in front of us. And, and quite honestly, it, it's just something that, that requires discipline for us to do, to think before we speak. And it is, it is not honest to just hurt someone because we can. Now, I'm a firm believer in not lying. I, I would hope that you would know that about me. I don't believe you should lie. 
Now, some of you will argue with me about that. And you will say, there are times when you should lie, Pastor Jeff, to save someone's feelings. Like, for instance, if my wife asks me, does this make me look fat? Most of you know that any answer you give in that situation is going to get you down the wrong road. It doesn't matter whether you tell the truth or whether you lie. If you flick your eye the wrong way, you can end up dead after that question comes out of her mouth. So you should know there's no good way to answer that. And to be perfectly honest, my wife looks good in everything. She never looks fat in anything, so I don't have to lie. So I can just tell her the truth all the time. And that's what I try to do. And there have been some times where you've asked me and I've said, no, maybe not that dress or maybe not that shirt. So I try to be honest. And she's brutally honest with me. That's her spiritual gift. I don't believe there's ever a time we should lie. But I also believe that sometimes there are things that we know, and even if they're true, that we would be better off keeping to ourselves. And that's what I think Mr. Bonhoeffer is talking about when he says that we should hold our tongue. Listen, the Bible actually has a lot to say about words in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We're going to first go to the Old Testament, and I want you to see some of the imagery, because in the Old Testament, the Hebrews, you know, in ancient times, this is thousands of years ago, tended to write about words as if they were weapons in a lot of cases. And that tells you how hurtful words can be. Let me share with you, for instance, Jeremiah, from the book of Jeremiah 9, 7 through 8. These are the words of the prophet. This is what he says. Therefore, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. See, I will melt them down in a crucible and test them like metal. What else can I do with my people? This is almost like a parent saying, what am I going to do with that child? How many of you have said that about your kids? That's, that's kind of what God is saying here. That what else can I do with these people? Listen to why. For their tongues shoot lies like poisoned arrows. They speak friendly words to their neighbors while scheming in their heart to kill them. Horrible things. Psalm chapter 64 verse 3 says this, they sharpen their tongues like swords and aim their bitter words like arrows. How many of you have been on the uh, the receiving end of some bitter words that felt a little bit like arrows from time to time? It's, It's happened to me once or twice. How about this one? Psalm 50 verses 20 through 21. You sit around and you slander your brother, your own mother's son. While you did all this, I remained silent. This is God speaking. And you thought I didn't care, but now I will rebuke you, listing all my charges against you. Listen, in the ancient times, we believe that most of the writers saw words as exactly what they described, an arrow that is being released from a bow. And as much as I said before that we would love to be able to grab those words and pull them back, you could no more take back speech, according to the ancient Hebrews, than you could grab an arrow mid-flight and return it to its starting point there at the string of the bow. You could never do that. Words, unfortunately, find their mark. They do their damage. And sometimes no apology in the world can fully undo the damage that an unkind word visits on a person. Needless to say, one of the greatest things that we can do to build up our real Christian community is to develop the habit of holding our tongue. So again, this is the first of what Bonhoeffer calls ministries. I I believe if we could truly learn to hold our tongue, 
If we could learn how to say things in a way that doesn't hurt people, it would be a true ministry to the church. Listen, even the disciples struggled with their words. And there's just a little snippet that kind of gives us an indication of what was happening. The story is in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. And if you read the whole story, you'll find the disciples are doing their normal daily thing. And somehow a conversation starts. And we find out what the conversation is because Jesus essentially gets to the point where he hears them talking. And personally, we don't know who started the conversation. We don't know what was said. But I have a feeling it probably started with Peter. Do you know why? Because Peter was the guy who always stuck his foot in his mouth. Do we have any Peters here today that love to stick their foot in their mouth, that open their mouth and insert foot a lot? I, I have a tendency to do that. I think Peter probably started it. I think Judas was probably quick to jump in. But the whole conversation essentially showed what was in their hearts. And, and what was in their hearts came out of their mouths. Listen to what it says. It simply says this. Then his disciples, Jesus' disciples, began arguing about which of them was the greatest. The, the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest among them. You would think being in the presence of Jesus would be enough for them, wouldn't you? I mean, they're, they're walking and, and talking and, and listening to and learning from a guy who can literally heal the sick, who can raise the dead, who can make lame people walk, who can make blind people see. You would think that would be enough for them where they'd just be tooling along, enjoying the moment. But no, they have to get in the midst of this conversation. And the reason for the conversation, according to Bonhoeffer, this is his take on this, is this, that the disciples themselves and we too have within us a deep-seated need because of our sin nature to elevate ourselves even if it means deflating everybody else around us. He believes that the reason the disciples ended up where they ended up in this conversation was because all of us really have an innate desire because of our sin nature to elevate ourselves in the midst of it. We all think we're better than we are. It's just kind of who we are. And, and some call it confidence. Some would call it pride. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a selfie, a, a selfie, health, selfie, a healthy self-image. The words won't come out. Selfie? That, that may have been a Freudian slip right there. A, a healthy self-image. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But according to Bonhoeffer, he thinks that this is evidence that the disciples and probably that each and every one of us, even when we're not thinking about it, even when we don't intend to, have a tendency to move our conversations in the direction of elevating ourselves, sometimes at the expense of those around us. Because it's kind of in our nature to put ourselves first, or at least it's a part of the sin nature. Jesus' nature is different than that. Jesus' nature says that, that we should become less and others should become more. He made himself less by coming to this earth. He made himself less by being born in a manger. He made himself less by coming as a carpenter's son and by serving. He made himself less when he washed the disciples' feet around a table, a smelly, smelly foot table. I can't even imagine what that must have smelled like. He spent his whole life making himself less. And here they are, arguing about how they can be more. I believe it's programmed inside of us. And because of that, we have a tendency to try to, to elevate ourselves. And so the disciples are there arguing and, and, and they're secretly allowing to come out of their mouth the feelings that are deep down inside of them. And, and again, we do this today. And, and I think it's, it's a real thing that sometimes when we're talking about another person, we don't even intend to say anything derogatory, but sometimes we just have a tendency to frame the conversation in such a way that it just makes us look a little better. 
and maybe them look a little less. And, and I wouldn't have believed this was true. But when I started studying this and reading it, guess what I did this week? I kind of started watching my conversations and seeing, is this in me? Do I, do I do that? I, I don't think I do that. I was thinking, Bonhoeffer's just being hard on Christians. And so I started measuring my conversations and watching the conversations of me and my family, my wife, my kids, and everybody else. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that there were frequently times when saying things about another person, even if they weren't necessarily derogatory, um, maybe melt, made me feel a little bit better about myself. And I started kind of gauging that and going, well, what am I doing here? I'm not intending to do that. Why would I do that? And sometimes in conversations, you know, even conversations that are seemingly innocuous, you know, how many of us as Christians will go to and talk about someone to someone else because we're concerned about them and we want to add them to the prayer list, right? We put people on the prayer list. And so we start talking to someone else about somebody's problem and we start out talking about how much they need prayer and how much they need help. But maybe we kind of wander to the topic of, how dumb they were to get themselves in this situation in the first place. You ever done that? I'm getting blank stares right now, which doesn't make me feel very good about myself. I've done it. Maybe you've done it. And maybe it's nothing even that obvious. Maybe just the way that we tell the story um, maybe stops being, please be concerned for this person, and, and maybe it's just kind of a sideways attempt to let everybody know that that person isn't all put together as much as maybe everybody thought. You see, I think there's a natural part within us that wants to elevate ourselves. And Bonhoeffer sees it in the disciples' words. And he warns us that we need to be careful. And again, sometimes we don't even intend it. We need to learn how to hold our tongues. Our words are important and our words are powerful so much more today than they were a few years ago. Think about my grandparents or great-grandparents' generation. For somebody to hear their words, you had to be in the same house, same room, or at least within shouting distance. Amen? Because that was all they had was their voices. I mean, my grandma could yell louder than anybody I knew because she used to call the cows when she was young. You know, she would call the cows in from the pasture. That woman could be so loud, and she would do it at the worst times, too. She'd scare the living daylights out of us, and she'd just call the cows on purpose just to scare us. But basically, their reach was as far as their voices would go. I mean, the occasional person might get published in a newspaper or something, but other than that, their reach was limited. Friends, today, I can type something, and it can be around the world in a matter of seconds. And Facebook and Instagram and Twitter don't let you forget the stupid things that you've said in the past. They remind you a few years later when your memories pop up. Hey, remember when you said this? You still proud of it? Anybody ever had that happen to them? Wow, I wish I hadn't posted that back then. I wished I hadn't said that quite the way I said it. I wish I would have been more reserved. Listen, friends, our words today are so powerful. The book of James in the New Testament has some things to say about our words too. And again, let's quickly walk through this. And I'm going to give you three very simple tips to, to kind of get you started in working on this. James says this, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every other way. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. 
But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all of the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on fire by the fire of hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish. I'd love to see somebody tame a fish. I don't know if that's true or accurate. Um, Fish. But no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. How many of you that just makes you want to go wash your mouth out with soap right now? You just want to... Is there hope? I mean, is there any hope for us? I mean, if it was happening back then and and he was dealing with it back then and we're still working on it today, is there any hope? I believe there is. And I think that it only comes as we listen and allow our lives to be changed and purified by the power of the Spirit of God. But in, in 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 the vein of getting you started, let me give you three quick suggestions on how you can start the process of getting a hold of your tongue. And this isn't going to get you all the way there, but it'll get you started, and I promise I'm going to be brief. First and foremost, listen more, speak less. Listen more and speak less. An amazing amount of good can be done if some of us would just stop talking. You ever known somebody where you just wanted to say that to them? Stop talking. Be quiet. When you're knee-deep in the hole, stop digging, right? Just quit. Be silent. Be quiet. I've often wanted to say that to my children from time to time as they're trying to dig their way out, and it's not helping. And I can see from mom's face it's not helping. Just be silent. Stop. Don't go any further. But listen, it would help us all. This advice, I believe, is good for all of us. Listen more. Speak less. And listen, don't just listen so you can respond. Don't listen so that you can plan your answer. Don't listen so you can get your jab ready or or return the, 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 the dart. Listen to hear. Listen to understand. Try to actually hear what the person is saying and maybe even identify with them a little bit. Our silence says more at times about our integrity than our words ever could. I love this scripture from Proverbs. My mom gave it to me when I was a kid. I don't know what she was trying to say by it, but just listen to this. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Dennis gets it, right? The the way my mom paraphrased it was like this. Even a fool looks like a wise man if he could learn to keep his mouth shut. That's the way she used to say it. I don't know what translation that was. I haven't looked it up. But the point came across pretty clear. Jeff, better to to let people wonder if you're an idiot than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Right? Have you heard that before? That's an idiom. That's just a saying. It's not in the Bible. But this one is. Listen, if you want people to think of you as wise, then be silent. Be a listener. Hear what they have to say. Second one, stop talking about other people unless you're talking to them. This is going to sound abrupt, and it's going to sound rude almost. Stop 
talking about other people. And friends, this one's coming right at me more than anybody else because, you know, I talk about people all the time because sometimes we're in the midst of a gathering and some of you are asking, hey, how's so-and-so? And I'll go off on a rant or talk about how they're doing or what they're doing or whatever. And you know what I've noticed as I've been thinking about this is that oftentimes in those stories are where somehow I end up at all the stuff that is going wrong in their life. Stop talking about other people unless you're talking to them. If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all, right? But it begins by just not saying anything at all so that you can learn the discipline of figuring out what is good and what isn't good to say. Listen, I'm a firm believer that we need to start doing more of this. We need to let people make up their own minds about the people we know rather than us trying to tell them about the people that we know so that they see them as we see them. You get what I'm saying? Rather than me sitting down with you and telling you all about someone, I should really introduce you so that you can make up your own mind about who they are. Because I don't necessarily need you to see them as I see them. I need you to see them as God sees them and as God created them. And the only way that's going to happen is if you sit down with them and have a conversation. So I need to stop talking about people unless I'm talking to them. The third one, this is kind of like that scripture in 1 John where it says, my friends, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, period. But if you do, the next verse says, well, that's what this is, okay? Stop talking about other people unless you're talking to them. If you must talk about other people, only describe the beauty, not the tragedy. A year ago, you all were kind enough to allow Tori and I to have our sabbatical. It was supposed to come in year seven of our tenure. COVID hit. We took it in year eight, and we're very appreciative of the time that you gave us away. Tori and I went to a place we had never been before. In fact, we'd never traveled, just the two of us, outside the continental United States. And so it was a really cool thing. We got to go to St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. And people asked me, what was it like? And my response was, it was the most beautiful place I've ever seen in my life. We sat, um, our place that we stayed was up on kind of on the side of a mountain and we would look out and we could see the sea, you know, we could see the ocean and there was an island that was actually offshore a little ways that was green and beautiful and plush and sometimes there were people over there swimming in the water. It was absolutely gorgeous. And we would, a couple nights we went down to the other end of the island so that we could watch the sunset. And let me tell you something, until you've seen a Caribbean sunset, Crayola doesn't have anywhere near as many colors as, as what I saw out there. It's unbelievable just beautiful we look out there and as the water um, you know is meeting the, the the sun as the sun's coming down and meeting the water this this beautiful scene is there before you and it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen St. Um, Croix was the most beautiful place on earth and also one of the ugliest because you know what they do in St. Croix they build buildings and then when the hurricanes come through they abandon those buildings that just got damaged they move over 10 feet and they build a new building they don't fix it, they don't move it, they don't clean it up. They pretty much just move over and start a new building. So there's multiple. This was hurricane so-and-so, this was hurricane so-and-so, now we're here. When you go to the downtown areas of St. Croix, it is the dirtiest, nastiest place you will ever see. She's like, let's go downtown and eat. And I'm thinking, okay. So we walk downtown, there are chickens everywhere. How many of you know what chickens do as they're walking around? Yeah, they peck things. What were you thinking? I, I was just thinking about their pecking things. But they do other stuff too, yeah. Not a clean place. Goats wandering through town. It was filthy. 
You couldn't tell if some of the buildings in their downtown areas were populated or not. There were buildings we swore were abandoned and falling down. And then, like, customers would walk out of them. We're like, oh, geez, there's a shop in there. And it looks like the roof is, like, caving in. So it, it was this horrible place when, when you look at it from there. But on the other end of the island where the rainforests are lush, it was absolutely gorgeous. Let me, here's my point. In each and every one of us as human beings, there is beauty and there is ugly. I hate to break it to you, but we all have parts of ourselves that are absolutely beautiful, that reflect the nature and the image of God. But there's also parts in every single one of us that reflect an, that reflect an ugly human nature that desires to lift itself and pull everybody else down. So here's what I want to say to you. If you must talk about another person, then get in the habit of only painting the beautiful side of the picture so that your words will always encourage others to get to know them more. The only way I'm ever going to convince anybody to go visit that beautiful place, St. Croix, is to tell them how beautiful it was. If I tell them all the other stuff, ain't nobody going there, right? So if I want them to have the experience that I have and to be able to experience the beauty that we experience... I have to paint the right kind of picture. And if we want people in our fellowship and in our community to love each other, to care about each other, and to see each other, uh, the, the image of God in each other, then we have to paint the right picture. So if you cannot refrain from talking about other people, only paint the beauty. You know, it's not your job to correct all the bad stuff anyway. That's God's responsibility. That's the Holy Spirit's work. That's not yours. Paint the beautiful picture. I'll close with this scripture that just kind of summarizes what I've just said. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Pray with me. Our God, we thank you today that we have this community of faith to be a part of here in this place. And we realize that we are part of a much larger community of faith that, that is meeting all over the world this morning. I pray that you would help us as a community of faith to start being more careful about what we say and how we say things. Lord, we know that there certainly is a time to correct what is wrong and to stand up for what we believe in, but those comments and those conversations should be had with the person that they're dealing with, not with someone else about them. And often, so often, we damage people's reputation and we say hurtful things because we do not control our tongues. Father, help us, as Bonhoeffer says, to avoid the temptation to tell our stories about others so that we are increased and they are decreased. Help us instead to, like the Apostle Paul, understand that we need to decrease so that Christ can increase. And Lord, as we point to Christ and as we paint the picture of how beautiful he is, I believe that it will turn people to you. Help us to become a, a congregation that knows how to hold its tongue. And if we can do that, I believe we will become and we will grow as a real Christian community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.